Is that good? Should we change the intro to that every time? I, I it was kind of scary. It was. So, welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. Uh, I'm trying not to be scary, but um, if our audio engineers included that first bit, it might be a little scary. So, apologies if I've triggered you. So today we're um, we're talking with Anthony Mills, and what can we say? We can say that it was a very innovative interview. It was it was innovative. I'm trying to think of a good pun, but I, I can't. So he's Randy Baker. I'm Dr. Kent. And um, we're just rolling with it this morning. Yeah, so uh, it's very purposeful, though, even though we're rolling. Purposeful. That's those animals that uh, breathe, but they can dive really deep. Right, yeah. Yeah, they sort of make funny noises. <laughs> can you? What kind of noises do they make? Are they the ones that make the little clicking sound with their... That's it. <laughs> That's it. All right. So I've achieved my daily purpose of getting Randy to make animal noises. This interview with Anthony was great because we went deep really quickly. I mean, he told us about his his childhood, his humble beginnings, and you know, he's he's got some amazing experience with innovation and all the rest. Yeah, so from a single home in... North Carolina to the boardrooms of corporations all over the world. It's a very interesting story. Yeah, he even said Kuala Lumpur, which he said right at the end, so we couldn't ask any questions about it. So if you get a chance, you know, follow him down and ask him about Kuala Lumpur. So here's our interview with Anthony Mills. Nice to talk with you, Anthony. So I get kind of obsessed with people's backgrounds, as listeners know, and I don't mean the history of your business and life and everything, although that'll come later. I'm obsessed with the background behind you there. So we've got a, there's a, a kind of an antique picture. There's there's a um, definitely a family photo, a couple family photos, a figure. Tell us what the significance of all the stuff behind you is. Simply some artwork in our, 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 uh, our home here. I'm uh, using a certain room in our home and just some artwork. I, I actually have another studio I use, but I usually use green screen and, uh, the platform we're using today doesn't, uh, have the virtual backgrounds. I don't believe so here I am in another room and, uh, yeah, it's the piece of art that my wife and I actually won in a raffle. It's, you know, worth a few hundred dollars from an art store in uh, Holland, Michigan. And, uh, we won it in a raffle, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. So are you are you one to sort of risk fame and fortune on raffle tickets? You'll you'll go to you know state fairs and and and, and gamble thousands. No, no. <laughs> you know, one raffle ticket a year maybe for five nice. dollars. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, so to dive into your other background. Yes. Did you win the lottery with your you know your parents and grandparents and upbringing? What what was what was little anthony like uh well you know it was uh i, w- I wouldn't say I, I won the lottery i i grew up in a very modest home grew up actually in north carolina and a homemaker and my father was actually a pastor but then he passed away actually when i was only 11 so then we moved yeah and uh kind of grew up in uh eastern part of that state and uh 
you know, uh, other than that, you know, that was, I'm sure, set a trajectory, but, you know, relatively normal upbringing, you know, uh, American upbringing. Wound up going to university. There were a number of men that steered me in the right direction into an engineering program and went to school at NC State in Raleigh and studied engineering and spent many years after that, you know, uh, working in that field, largely in product development. Your father died when you were 11. I'm sure that mm -hmm. was just incredibly shocking, especially I'm, I'm sure if he's a pastor, he was a, a sweet talker and a charismatic individual in some ways. Yeah, in some ways he was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was, you know, it was a difficult transition for an 11 year old to make to uh, to, to go you know from having a father to not having a father. And, uh, you know, it was, as I would say, a transition for sure. And it did, you know, I think it's impacted my life from from then till now. And I think the way it has impacted my life is it's it's really forced me to always think about what's my purpose in life and what sort of legacy am I leaving and what am I actually doing, you know, because I, I realize life is short and uh, those sort of things really have a, put a, make an impression on your life for sure. So what I think is so intriguing about your story is is clearly you grew up humbly, you know, and I think that that really, you know, I mean, you're playing it down a lot, but the language you're using around your family and your house and everything else, even the way the lottery ticket painting yeah. behind you, like yeah. it's, there's some humility to it, but you work with head honchos and, and people who maybe have to have some ego and, and drive it around in a wheelbarrow in front of them. It's so big, <laughs> right? So what, how do you kind of deal with both of those animals at the same time? Yeah. Well, you know, I never obviously forget my roots for sure. And, uh, but, you know, I do work with some very high ranking people and very large organizations all over the world. You know, I, my work is very global. I work, you know, in the U.S. and Europe and the Middle East and Africa and Asia. And I work with a lot of people. The nice thing is that my work focuses on innovation. And the thing that you know, I always emphasize to the organizations I work with is, is they have to be humble because anytime an organization becomes arrogant and, and has hubris and because of their proud of their accomplishments and what they've done, that's usually the path to becoming irrelevant. You know, as they say, pride comes before fall. So I think, you know, I get that message through to most of them that no matter what they've accomplished, and no matter what they have achieved, you know, it, it may be all irrelevant tomorrow. And that's why we pursue innovation. And, and therefore, innovation requires a lot of humility. And so if I can get them to understand that, you know, that brings humility back into the picture. So, you know, yeah, in my life personally and in, and in my work professionally, humility is actually a big, huge part of it because otherwise organizations will ultimately become irrelevant. I have to jump in here before Randy starts because he's wearing a crazy t-shirt today saying like brashly, arrogantly built in the 50s. <laughs> so explain that and then you can talk about humility. <laughs> yeah, it says um, built in the 50s, original and unrestored. And then in small letters at the bottom, it says some parts to work. So, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So that, it's interesting that you brought that up because I'm going to tie that into innovation, which is going to tie in with what Anthony's going to talk about. So, Anthony, if I remember correctly, you were in product development, which is a very innovative field. And you've got a product, you can, you can shape it, you can determine what people need it to do, what problems it solve, and you're going to engineer all of those solutions into it. 
very innovative, starting with a, a product that you can touch and feel. In the corporate sense, so that's why I'm going to tie the T-shirt in because vehicles are very innovative today after 50 years of just being minor changes and improvements. In the corporate field and with the people you're talking about, you're talking about innovation in a different sense. It's not necessarily product innovation, it's cultural innovation or management innovation. How do you teach somebody to be innovative in a non-product related area? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and you're, first of all, you're correct. It's product innovation is just one type of innovation. In terms of the outputs of innovation, you know, there, there's product innovation, there's service innovation, there's customer experience innovation, there's business model innovation, there's ecosystem innovation. So all of those are actually manifestations of innovation. But then innovation also focuses on the organization itself. And that's where you get into uh, what we call management innovation and workplace innovation and even transformation, like digital transformation. So we want organizations we work with and we want them to understand that this journey of innovation is actually extremely holistic. It involves everyone and everything in their organization and everything about their organization, not just what they're putting out there, not just the value they're delivering, but actually who they are and, and who they're going to become in the future and the, so that they can deliver constantly deliver relevant value. So to your question, that, that really gets to a number of elements inside the organization. Number one, it gets to the culture of the organization and the environment you create in the organization. But even more deeply, it gets to the leadership in the organization because you have to have leaders who are willing to step up and sponsor a real innovation program and put forth a mandate for innovation and really drive that. So it starts with them setting the, the foundation for this. And, and part of that is you know, uh, articulating certain values and principles and beliefs about how much we, we how we value innovation and the role it plays and its importance and then really building that culture and creating that environment that will nurture innovation and then once you've done those things there, there's there's protocols and processes you know we implement in terms of you know processes and procedures and metrics and, and governance processes that ultimately allow you to create what what we call a corporate innovation program part of which is innovation management. And what that's about is creating a pipeline, uh, a funnel and a pipeline that you're constantly driving innovation. It's not just a one-off thing. It's happening all the time, a relentless pursuit. But it, yeah, absolutely, you have to start with the leadership and the culture and set that foundation. Because if you try to do all the other things without that foundation in place, then it, it won't work. So that foundation is imperative. So skeptics would argue that what you're talking about is, let's say, nothing more than the natural progression, the natural change that organizations, companies, businesses go through over time. So what is different about what you do? Is it because it's specific and purposeful or is it, I'm, I'm not sure. I'll let you answer that. Yeah, no, that's a fair question. It, it is, what's different is, it is definitely more intentional and explicit. And, and the problem is, I mean, going back to what you mentioned was this, this natural evolution of organizations. I think that has worked for much of the past hundred years of, of you know, our industrial society. What's different today is the pace of change is significantly faster than it was 50 years ago or 40 years ago. 
and it continues to get faster. And so if, if you look at, for example, if you map out, you know, we're now in the, what's called the fourth industrial revolution. If you map out the first, the second, the third, and the fourth industrial revolutions, each revolution has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter because the pace of change has accelerated and we're going a lot faster. So my point there is that the natural evolution that, that we historically knew in the industrial revolution, that pace is not adequate to keep up with the pace we're changing now. And so in order to keep up with the pace of change, it actually requires organizations to be much more intentional and explicit about driving the necessary transformations at a pace that's on par with that rate. And what we work with organizations to do is to think uh, about what's called future shaping strategies or just shaping strategies, but they're about how we shape the future to become what we want it to be, which includes us becoming what we want to be. And that requires really looking out 10, 15, 20 years in the future and thinking about who do we want to be and what transformations are gonna be necessary given the pace of change during that time and then working backwards and figuring out what are, what are our strategies and actions now. But that's what's driving it. It's a much faster pace, and so they do definitely have to be far more intentional and explicit about it. So the, the, the future shaping strategies, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are your own future shaping strategies in terms of not kind of pie in the sky and so on, but what kind of impact do you want to have had? Um, I always talk about this as huckleberry finning, but if you're sitting in the balcony and looking in on your own <laughs> uh, memorial anyway, service years yeah. and years from now, yeah. what, 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 I mean, what's your stretch yeah. goal? Yeah. So one of the hats I wear, I, I'm the executive director of Global Innovation Institute. And at the Institute, you know, we are a global certifying uh, for professionals and, and business accreditation organization. And ultimately, our mission is to really develop innovation capability inside of organizations. And so, you know, when my day comes 30 years from now or whenever it will be, and we're looking at my wake, the legacy I want to have left will have been one where he truly elevated the world's ability to deliver innovation and transform and adapt and be, remain relevant. And that we've developed that capability inside of you know, thousands of organizations. Well, let's say tens of thousands, because I think we're actually already at the thousands of organizations. Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of organizations, you know, that what his work has allowed those organizations to really develop the capacity and capability to be innovative and to drive the transformation and change that they need to, to continue to lead the future. And that's the legacy he's left. I mean, it's a, I'd say a massive global legacy and massive global impact. So I love that. And if those are the, the little capillaries of the lungs, or if those are the little tiny tree branch, tree twigs, let's go back to all those mentors you were talking about. So you, you had so many folks around you who shaped you. I, I assume starting with your mom and dad, starting with your, your, your uh, family structure, your family unit, the people who probably stepped in or where you reached out somewhere. Uh, who are the folks along the way that kind of mentored you or supported you and helped you, uh, hopefully, you to reach that mm -hmm. massive impact? And you've already yeah. had great impact, but who are those folks that, that were your grandparents and parents yeah. of Im impact, influence? Sure. Yeah, so obviously as a young child, it was primarily, you know, my parents, Mo, but, but once I made that transition into, you know, middle school, junior high and high school, uh, not having a father... You know, there were, there were a number of men, largely men in my church, uh, that, that really stepped up to the plate and 
kind of came alongside and we were mentor. You know, a couple of those were engineers. And again, they're the ones that helped steer me toward engineering background. But then there was one gentleman in particular. Uh, his name was Daniel LaRue. And uh, he was actually originally from South Africa. Uh, but he lived in the town I grew up in. And Daniil took a specific interest in really being there to, for me, particularly when I went off to college because, you know, I was at a, a university in, in Raleigh, North Carolina at NC State, and he was an hour and a half away. He would drive hour and a half just to come take me to lunch and spend time and share his insights and, and perspectives with me. And I think he had, you know, he was older. He was, he'd lived in different countries. He had a really great global perspective and insight on different cultures and, and mindsets and he was a big influence in shaping me and, and, and uh, helping see my perspective uh, or develop my perspective. You know, and then as I went through university, I had a, a number of professors there that really, you know, helped shape my perspective as well. Not one necessarily in, in particular, but, you know, I had a graduate, I went to, did a, a master's degree as well and had a graduate advisor. And he had some insight and I had a couple of other professors that were really, really excellent professors. And Again, some of them had, had come from other countries, and I think that really began to expand my, my global perspective when I was uh, at school there. You know, and then coming up through my career, you know, I, I really started my professional career, my first real major job out of graduate school, uh, working at Ford Motor Company uh, in the Detroit area. You know, and I had some great managers there that, you know, it was, it was a great learning curve. And, you know, uh, one in particular, I think you know, a gentleman named Dale Linhart, he really stepped up and, and, you know, being the fresh new engineer on site there uh, in the automotive industry, he, he had a lot of great insight that really helped, you know, ease my way into the corporate world. And I had a couple of official mentors, you know, and uh, I was in a program called the Ford College Graduate Program and two years you're doing rotations and, you know, I had mentors in that program too that they really helped guide me into the corporate world. And, I, and that's where I had a lot of my first exposure. And I was even then, starting, I was passionate about business and about corporate environment. I was very passionate about, you know, given the resources and capacity they have, all the things they could do. And so there was definitely some, some uh, gentlemen and individuals at Ford Motor Company that really helped me get my start in understanding corporate America and industry. And uh, really, that was a great foundation. And at, and at Ford, did you start with your hands? I mean, were you engineering stuff? Were you fixing stuff? Were you... What yeah. was what was that start? Yeah, yeah, it was. So I was in different design groups. So it was actually doing a lot of the design and development work. My my home group were actually doing engineering structural analysis. So you know I was working on structural analysis of body structures and hoods and um, you know fenders and different parts of automobiles. The the main body structure. We're doing all the structural analysis. So you know it gets quite arcane engineering technical stuff with finite element analysis. Oh, stuff, so. I thought it was just you all stood around in a group and jumped up and down on top of cars. <laughs> well, there's machines that do that. There's certainly <laughs> actual real validation testing and you, know, you, you do accelerated life testing uh, where there's millions of cycles. You know, it's not feasible for people to do that. So there's, there's automated machines that do all that testing. But for sure, there's a lot of that as well. And yeah, I was involved in that as well. You know, I also did some rotations where we we're doing suspension design and other stuff. But certainly there's a lot of everything gets validated extensively. Uh, I did a lot of work. I had a, my master's degree was in acoustics. So I did a lot of work in sound quality and the acoustic environment of the automobile and 
lots of testing and analysis and that. So yeah, between testing, analysis, design, and so computational. I want to geek out about that for a second. So your ears are very important to your career. So how have your ears shaped the work that you do now? Obviously, you were thinking about spaces, about acoustics. Yes. And way back, your dad, I assume, if he was a preacher, he was preaching and he was thinking about acoustics. How do you project? Yeah. How do you, you know, yeah. how do you use a space? How's yeah. that informed you? Well, yeah, no, that, I mean, I guess in two ways. I mean, you know, we use our ears to listen. And, you know, in the work I do, listening to people is very important, you know, making sure I'm listening more than I'm talking. In the business sense, we all in, in leading business, we have to listen to customers. We have to listen to markets, both current customers and future customers. So listening, actually called the voice of the customer, listening to the voice of the customer, understanding unmet needs, unarticulated needs, listening is extremely important. So even if you're doing like customer research and user research, I mean, you, there's a lot of interviewing and, and observation that goes in that. So listening to what, not only what your customers are saying, actually sometimes to what they're not saying. And asking what is it they're not saying they should be saying, and asking them why, 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 why we do the five whys, why, 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 right? To get to the real causes, to really understand their their values, their needs, the uh, what what their motivations are, what drives them. Tremendous amount of listening goes into really good engineering work. So that's important, you know. And then there's an, one other element is, you know, yeah, we talked about acoustics. You know, we, we actually work with organizations to design innovation spaces and innovation labs and environments that really support creativity and innovation and you know the acoustics of those are important you know one of the neat little acoustic tricks is you know when you have an open space but you have these seats that have wraparound backs and they're facing each other so people can have uh, individual private conversations in a larger environment because of how the acoustic treatment is done so there's there's actually a lot of tricks you do uh, acoustically in environments like that but you know we create environments that are really conducive to good innovation and some of those also include, you know, user research labs where we bring in users and we work with them. And so you, you're, you're constantly listening, you know, in the environment, you're listening to customers, absolutely critical to the work. So I'm, I'm a little intrigued, Anthony, when you, when you go and I don't know whether you actually pitch to C-suites or whether you um, just have meetings with them, but when, when you're in a meeting with, you know, the CEO or the, the C-suite, what is it that the organization leadership has identified within their organization that makes them understand the need to bring in consultants like yourself to help the company innovate? What, what's the trigger? What's the, what's the challenge that they're facing? So usually what happens is they recognize that their markets are changing and evolving and that they are not changing and evolving fast enough to keep up with that. So anytime the external, your external world is changing and evolving faster than your internal world, you, you have a gap and usually have a growing gap. And they, they come to recognize that. They come to recognize, hey, we have a gap and that gap is not decreasing, it's actually increasing. And, we're, and, and our pace, our internal pace of the, you know, what we're doing and the value we're creating and the evolution and change of that is not keeping up with the pace of the external world. And therefore, they bring us in to work with them to help create programs uh, where we can set up uh, groups inside the organization as well as really engage the entire organization in finding new, specific new opportunities for them to leapfrog and get ahead and actually not only catch up with that pace, but, but ult the ultimate goal that we work with them on is to become the driving force in their market. So they're the ones actually defining that pace of change. 
it's it's you know they actually want to get out ahead of that pace and be moving you know, not so much too far ahead but they want to be the ones that are really at the leading edge of that pace of change and they want to be the ones shaping and defining and owning the future and therefore that's what we help them do we really help them think about the strategies and the programs and the groups and the organizational structure and the roles and the processes and how they're going to implement this whole engine of innovation and and the strategies they're going to go after and how they're going to execute those strategies so that they can actually be the ones setting the pace of change and driving what's happening in the outside environment. And that way, they'll always, they'll never have a gap. They'll keep the gap closed and they'll never fall behind. Because if they don't do this, typically what happens is inevitably they get so far behind, they become irrelevant and they go out of business. So it's a very existential threat to them at times. Thanks so much uh, for talking with us. I mean, really fun to dive in and, and punch out some great ideas really quickly. Um, if you were to send folks to you online or um, to your site or uh, any other place you'd like to your front doorstep so they can knock on your door, where would you send people and who are you looking for? Yeah. So, you know, let's start with who we're looking for. You know, we're looking for usually corporate leaders, business leaders. It can be a, a mid-sized to a large organization, but we're looking for the, those type of leaders who recognize that uh, their organization is not where it needs to be and needs really needs help in moving the needle, moving the needle forward in their pace of uh, evolution and change and getting innovation done. So, so we want the leaders who understand that and they're committed. They're committed to really becoming the driving force in their markets. That's the type of leaders we're looking for. In terms of them connecting with us, they can connect with me personally. I have a website, anthonymills.com, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-M-I-L-L-S. AnthonyMills.com. They can go directly to my website. They can connect with me directly. They can also, I, I, I run a consulting firm, Legacy Innovation Group. That's LegacyInnova.com. And then I also am the executive director of Global Innovation Institute, and that's just GINI.org. So they can look there. So they can find me at all those places and uh, happy to connect with them. Physically, I travel a lot, uh, pandemic notwithstanding. I do travel a lot internationally, and you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in Dubai. I spent time in Amsterdam. I spent time in Kuala Lumpur. So wherever they are in the world, I will travel, and you know, we'll take we'll take this knowledge to their organization. So you'll you'll come to them. They don't have to knock on your front door. That's good. That's, That's a good approach. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been a blast talking with you. Thanks for rolling with My the punches pleasure. here. It's it's always a My pleasure. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Anthony. I was wondering when we were going to travel around the world with you, and you kept that right to the very end. You mentioned Amsterdam and Kuala Lumpur, and where else did you mention? Well, the inside of a Ford. Oh, Dubai. Yeah, but the, the most in, in, interesting thing for me was thinking about the acoustics inside a car, which is kind of the so, so here. I find it very weird that in cars we don't have like little stereo systems that get stereo for the driver. Because if we're in our car all by ourselves, why do we have to have stereo sound that goes, you know what I'm saying here? Like, why does it cover the whole car? Why doesn't it just kind of be well, stereo I can, sound? I can control us? mine so that I, as the driver, get the stereo sound. Really? Yeah. Okay. Maybe it's because my car is 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. But it is very interesting, and the, the whole idea of acoustically engineering your workspace to encourage innovation 
is very interesting and innovation and efficiency. True, true. And I, and I would like to acoustically encourage all of you to visit thoughtpartnergroup.com. Or you could go and visit resonateengine.com and see what we've recently innovated. Yep. Thank you.